Oh my gosh, that is the longest hiatus that I've ever taken for Surf Splendor. Our last episode was published six weeks ago on October 7th with Sean Doherty. And yet, despite all of that downtime, I've actually been busier than ever. But all of my time has been devoted towards administrative work and archival work, stuff that I am not particularly good at. And uh, the time really has come for a solution. This workload that I am doing is not sustainable. All that I really want to do is interview interesting people and publish those shows weekly. But all of these other things is preventing me from doing the best job that I can with that. But I think that I have found a solution. Today, we are launching an official subscription platform on surfsplendorpodcast.com where you can access our entire archive of shows ad-free for $5 a month. You'll also get discounts on merch, which will land in the next couple of weeks, hopefully just before Christmas. You will be entered to win surfboards, fins, and other product giveaways. But most importantly, you'll allow us to delegate some of our more tedious and time-consuming tasks out to professionals. So the accounting, the graphic design, the editing, all of your support will allow us to produce more shows, bring on more contributors, and begin to produce video pieces in 2021. We'd love to bring you more live stream commentary during events like Chaz and I did last year for the finals day at France. We'd like to do video contest recaps uh, with the likes of people like Maurice Cole or other past guests that you have asked for more of. I'd love to be able to do comprehensive surfboard reviews of boards that we often reference writing. We could also include interviews with those shapers, but very importantly, we'd like to be able to pay those guests and even pay the board builders for the boards that we're reviewing. So your $5 monthly subscription gives us predictable revenue to build this business on and also invest back into these contributors, back into the writers who used to get paid by magazines, back towards board builders, Imagine if we could get to the point where we're paying surf photographers. So myself, Scott and Chaz, Donald Brink, and the Brewer Brothers have all proven through years of making these shows that we're willing to do this workload. But at this point, we're all maxed out. And we've learned also that the advertising model has limitations. And it only really works for us here if we can be discerning about who we work with. Through that learning experience, the reality is that we are not covering our costs and not a single one of us, myself included, is making enough money to continue to justify the amount of time that we've each invested weekly for the past seven years. So we would all prefer to do this work that we're doing here and we'd prefer this model of direct access and communication with you, the listener community that we've developed over seven years. So we're streamlining the business model and we're empowering you to invest in what you want to see and hear. Tell us who you want to be interviewed, which boards you want to hear reviewed, and what stories you want us to investigate. So you can go to surfsplendorpodcast.com and click on support the show. Sign up with any major credit card. If you've been donating to us via PayPal or Venmo, that is all still active too. So you can stay there. Um, I'll make sure to include you in giveaways if you prefer to donate that way. But I'd encourage you to switch over to this new service just so it helps keep it simple for us. 
And then as a thank you for your support and the launch of this platform, we are giving away an album surfboards soft top on December 1st to one of our supporters randomly selected. It is their Presto model. It's a 5.7 fish that they've actually scanned from a hand-shaped album fish. It's made in the USA. It's a performance soft top with bottom contours in it, removable futures fins. There's actually stringer inserts embedded in the core soft top foam. It's a $425 value that album has donated generously, and we're giving it away as a thank you for supporting our seven years of work here and investing in an indefinite number of more years. And honestly, your support really ensures that we can archive these shows properly through the very real costs of hard drives, server space, etc., etc. These are monthly costs that we've been incurring all along. So I've put that link to support the show in your show notes. So you can pull it up on your phone and do it right now. Or you can go to surfsplendorpodcast.com, click support the show. $5 a month gives you access to our full archive ad-free, plus discounts on the coming merch and automatic entry into product giveaways, including this month's $425 album surfboards soft top. So from Scott Bass, Chas Smith, Donald Brink, the Brewer Brothers, Matt Warshaw, and myself, David Scales, we're offering you a huge thank you for the seven years of listenership, your confidence, encouragement, and your continued support. There is much more to come. Blake Peters is our guest today. Panda Surfboards is his label, and you've seen his boards in various Stab Magazine surfboard tests, Stab in the Dark and the Electric Acid Surfboard Test. You've seen various pros riding his boards. I like Blake's boards because he and I are similar in age, and it seems that his design evolution and interests has followed very closely to my own interests. That is, I'm interested in deluding myself into believing that I can still shred on a shortboard, and Blake is making various alternative shortboards that allow aging dad bod surfers to still crack the lip. But as it relates to this podcast, I wanted to have Blake on to discuss a theme that's been present through almost all of my conversations with board builders since the very beginning, regardless of age and regardless of how popular they are. And that theme is, how do you make a living building surfboards? It's a paradoxical profession in many ways. Succeeding as a board builder begets responsibility and undermines the exact reason that most people choose to build surfboards for a living. What's further confounding is that oftentimes, the net sales margins paradoxically decrease as one's sales volume increases. So, enter Blake Peters. Blake has a thriving business. People around the world want his boards. He has the opportunity to set up manufacturing abroad if he so chooses. He could increase manufacturing here in the US and ship boards around the world if he so chooses. He can stay his current size or he could even scale back if he wants to. 
And these decisions that he's gifted with about how to grow his business have all been accelerated by COVID-19. As with many other outdoor activities, surfing and the surfboard industry is experiencing an unprecedented boom. So that is why I wanted to talk to Blake Peters. So without further ado, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Blake Peters of Panda Surfboards. to meet you you too we have a number of things we can and we will talk about but this the timing of this conversation is interesting because surfboard manufacturing is experiencing a boom that we have not seen i think in a very long time yeah how's your business so i mean i'm flat out i'm super busy i i think um i'm gonna do i'm on track to finish here doing more than usual and i haven't done all the retail stuff that i normally would do so it's mainly been just custom orders direct to consumer no way so and then i haven't done um like all the travel i'd normally do haven't been able to go to europe haven't been able to go to japan haven't been able to go to australia so that's a whole chunk of my regular income um so i've I have been doing some of that, but it's like I'm shipping from here over there and then the numbers of that are not what they would be as if I was going there. Right. So it's a little less. Right. Um, and Australia, like it's obviously way better if I go there. Um, boards are still getting made there. Here it's, um, yeah, online went crazy when COVID hit. So I think that's actually been a good thing. Okay makes in some ways it makes um the flow of everything a lot better i prefer that there's a little less kind of interaction in a way um a little more email and whatnot but it works really well and um i'm happy with doing that i prefer doing that good um but yeah, it definitely has that side of things has boomed. When COVID hit, um, I'd just done Surf Expo. I had, I was really trying to hit the ground running the start of this year and actually try have everything locked in and happening early. Whereas a lot of the time, I'm kind of a little slow to get going. Um, so I had all these orders locked in. I had a ton of foam just arrived, and then COVID hit. So I went into like emergency mode and kind of was putting everything aside that didn't need to get done, kept the customs going um, and basically just had to pull the money together to make sure I could get through what was going to be a lockdown and who knew what was going to happen. Totally. Um, 
thinking then, thinking that you weren't going to make yeah. money probably. So all the stores closed and I had all these orders. So I was like, shit. Um, and just put that on the back burner. And then there was only like one week where it went dead and then it just started trickling in. And it kind of got to a good, a really good point where I was doing less than normal. So I'm like five, maybe ten a week, surfing more, and it's full price custom orders. So I'm making all right money surfing, and I was loving it. Yeah. Now I'd go in, kind of work lunchtime ish through the afternoon, surf all morning, um, and that was really good. And I actually was starting to really think about how I had been doing everything, like working my ass off and not surfing and like not necessarily making any money, whereas I could do five to ten a week full price custom orders and actually live the lifestyle a bit better. It's much better. I was way happier. Um, So, yeah, I was doing that and then it just started steamrolling. Um, and I've had a couple of record weeks, that's for sure. Amazing. Um, but it's also, it's kind of got to a point where like, you know, if you order now, the start of November, you're not getting, your, you're not going to get your board till mid, end of January, really. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then there's some, some material shortages with fins and that sort of stuff. A lot of guys are sold out of product and that's kind of starting to be a little bit of an issue here yeah. and there. Um, but generally it's been pretty good. It's just become a real management yeah. thing, you know. Like I'm, I'm uh, pretty much i got to spend Monday, Tuesday on the computer dealing with customers, going back and forth and doing files, entering orders. Then I get Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in the bay and I'm kind of not really scratching the surface. Crazy. Yeah. So it's I've got to try and stick to this sort of set um, routine to try stay on top of it and even that I'm not really getting on top of things. Um I'm glad that you're touching on all of this because part of the reason I wanted to talk to you was the size that you're at. It's like you have world, you're a worldwide brand. You're not a small brand, but you're also not a big brand. Yeah. Yeah. But you're at this really vulnerable stage where it's like, you could become a very big brand yeah. or you could scale back a little bit which maybe you're learning that is an option and charge a little bit more, surf more frequently, deal direct with customers. Yeah. So I wanted to actually tease all this apart anyway. Um, I'll start by let's detail for the listeners what your uh, work facility looks like. You work out of Pure Glass, which is yep. Costa Mesa yep. factory essentially. So do you rent a shaping bay? Do you glass the boards? How does that all so work? So I work out of Pure Glass, so I contract all my glassing to those guys. I rent a space there, so I have a showroom zone and an office space and shaping bay. So I have everything I need there and I can literally grow, I should, but in theory, be able to grow as big as I can and they should be able to facilitate that. Um, I have previously, when I was in Australia, I had a factory, I've had a shop, I've been through multiple 
setups and the issue you get with that is staffing like there's and we all know there's a limited amount of skilled surfboard manufacturers out there um it is great having your own factory because you can get things done when you need to get it done um and tinker around experiment with stuff a lot more um but at the same time the whole staff thing's a real issue and the setup I have now, it's I've I've gone through so many different uh you know, setups where um like I have one I got shut down, um, and then when I started travelling a lot, like trying to keep things afloat's really hard. So when I set up here, I really tried to minimize all my costs right down to the bare bone. Um, so I'm running on like the leanest setup and I'm a one man show. So I don't have to worry about anyone else. I'm just focusing on dealing with the customer, getting the board shaped. That's my thing. And then I leave the glassing to the other guys. Now I did everything else and it really does become a nightmare when you're trying to manage the whole thing. Having pure glass there, I can kind of micromanage a bit. I'm there all the time so I can oversee things, but they deal with the workers, they deal with the glassing, that's their thing. Um, and I've found that works pretty good. And then I have the same sort of thing in Australia. So I'm over here, I'm still getting boards done in Australia. I work with um, Heart of Glass in Byron Bay and Rhino Laminating in Sydney. Same sort of thing, when I go back there, I'll shape um, probably at Rhino um and they'll manufacture everything or i'll go up to byron bay for a week and i'll smash out a bunch of boards they'll glass there um and then while i'm here i can send files over and they keep production rolling good so i can kind of do it all around the world and not be locked down to one place you know like you there's been a few guys set up over here recently and without you know, other Aussie shapers without being here full time, it's very hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, this allows me to travel around. I'm not stressing over things, workers, rent, um, and like how I've got it now. I only have to do five boards a week, if that, to like stay afloat. Yeah. So if things crash, I'm pretty good. Good. So. Yeah, um, I think I'm in a pretty good position and I have seen a lot of other guys go through the same sort of thing and there really is a sweet spot. And right. where I am right now is kind of that sweet spot. It is getting a little out of hand. But if you can do as much as you can yourself, it's better. And then once it goes over that, you just – creates a lot of other issues and it becomes a whole other thing. You add adding the overhead doesn't mean you need to make seven boards instead of five. It probably means you need to make 15 instead of five. Yeah. To and cover the overhead. the whole like, you know, like if you, if you do, there's a big jump from 10 boards a week to 20. Exactly. You've got to hustle to make that extra 20. It's a lot harder than you think. And then whether that's wholesaling or if it's direct to consumer, like wholesaling is a whole 
other big thing as well and you don't make that much out of it. Right. Is it's So the wholesaling also comes with a different marketing strategy, which then a bunch of content that you have to create, a different administrative practice. Yeah. So the accounting and all of that, it's not growth isn't always good. Like growth can be the death of a small business for sure. I like the way that you explain pure glass because I think a lot of listeners or just average surfers don't understand that business model. And they might've even heard about contract glass shops, but they probably envision that as a lamination facility that has a bunch of different board shapers dropping boards off, glassing them, and then being picked up. Yeah, Yours, you're on site. It's like having, for you, it's like having an in-house glass shop but somebody else manages all of the administrative for you. They manage the work, the workers, like you said, the scheduling, the people quitting, the hiring new yeah, people, interviewing exactly. people, all that sort of dealing with quality control, all of that stuff. Like you said, you can micromanage it as if it were in-house, but you don't have to deal with all the headaches. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Like that's a tremendous service that they provide. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, it has its pros and cons. But it's definitely worth me staying there over than going setting up my own place. Right. And even just going setting up your own place, it's pretty much impossible nowadays. Now. In, in you've California. Gotta, you've got to pretty much go into an, a, a pre-existing factory to yeah. get it set up. Yeah, the, so that detail is uh, you'll never get it approved by all of the different entities, the fire department, the city council, all of that for yeah using toxic chemicals, quote unquote. So yeah, having it grandfathered in is key in Southern California anyways. I think it's pretty much the same in really? most places, but Australia's the same. Yeah. Um, like all the factories I've worked out of, apart from one, um, they were all pre-existing. Um, and that was the only way that they were gonna, it was ever gonna work. Um, I had one shut down. That wasn't a pre-existing one and I had neighbors complaining about resin fumes and stuff like that yeah so that sucked but um i just turned that into my retail space and i actually kept that for quite a long time mm. but um yeah it's a whole other thing and then you got to have the capital to set that up dude so in southern california if you wanted to bring it up to code it would be not feasible like to have the ventilators and the yeah. recyclers and the proper disposal and everything, surfboards would need to be $2,000 a board. You know? This current work life that Blake has just outlined was a long time coming and the result of many different iterations of Panda surfboards. And also many years building boards in every conceivable capacity. And though Blake is now officially settled in Southern California, his entry into board building started on a different continent a couple of decades ago. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Sydney's Northern Beaches, which was a you know, real hotbed for surfing and surfboard manufacturing. Um, a lot of big names out of there. Um, and I've been lucky enough to work alongside some really big names. Um, and I was, I was doing pretty good in Australia. Um, started, you know, doing quite a few boards. Um, but I also was kind of getting a little burnt out. Um, started traveling a little bit. 
came over. What, he just kind of. What age was this getting burned out? Like 27, 28. Okay. I was just like, I was working so hard. I was so determined. And when you're working with surfboards, you've got to have a pretty thick skin. It's quite hard to, you know, make you push your way up through the the ranks and you get knocked down quite a bit. It's like where I started, no one really wants to teach you. No one really like – like you'll get guys teaching you, but they're not going to show you everything. Mm. Um, and you got to – got to um, – Basically, you got to work your way from the ground up. And were you making I, your own label at that time? Yeah, I've okay. always made my own label right from the very beginning. Okay. Um, and I just, I just kind of got to a point where I was getting pretty over it. Um, and I, I was doing boards in Japan. I was, um, I don't think I'd done Europe yet, but I came over here because I was making boards for um, Ford Archibald. And I just came over for a holiday. I had a friend working for FCS and um, I came over for a couple of weeks just to hang out with him and surf and hang out, party. And um, I, like in the back of my head, I was like, oh, maybe I can find a distributor or something, just scope it out. And I met a few people and then I came back the following year. I had a wedding in Hawaii and then I came out straight over here after that to shape a few boards for um, for Ford and a couple of his friends. And in that trip, I just met a few people and one guy at the factory was like, oh, you should hang here for the summer. It's like, you know what, that's a great idea. So I went home. I had a shop and everything. I just shut it for the winter, um, came back a month later, um, bought a van, lived out of the van, just cruised around and had a good time. I I was doing a few boards and just getting by, you know, and just just having a good time. Yeah. And I that was enough for me to like get my foot in the door a few places, get a few accounts. And um I I just really enjoyed it. And I was having fun kind of I guess winding it back a little bit so it wasn't so serious. Um and that was kind of the start of it. And then I like I, I did a couple trade I did the trade show um, Surf Expo a couple of years in a row. I was I just started bouncing back and forth a bit. I was lucky enough to have a friend that works for Qantas, so I was getting cheap flights. So I come here. I think I came here like two or three times in a year. And basically, I did five years of no winter. Five. Five years of just straight summer. Um, and I got to a point where it was like I had to make up my mind where I was going to be based out of. Um, so I decided to base myself here. There's a lot more room to grow here. There's a much bigger market, a lot more stores. Australia, surfing's big, but we don't have the population. It's a lot smaller. It's really hard. We've got so many big competitors um, and I was really enjoying it here, you know, was, like Australia had already started kind of losing a bit of that surf culture, you know, with the magazines and everything crashing now, you would have noticed it's all, it kind of is fizzling away. Um, here it was, it was still going strong. Um, 
And yeah, I uh, based myself here and now I'm married and I'm stuck here full time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the worst place to be. Stuck. Yeah, but um, I, I do plan on like now I've got it to a point here where it's going steady and strong. I always plan on getting back to sure. Australia and keeping everything going, what I'd originally built up. I just kind of focus the last few years here really steadily. Um, so once COVID's over, I do plan on trying to bounce back and forward a little bit more. Um, but this is definitely the, for now, the base. Uncertain of his career path and in no rush to make a commitment, in 2005, Blake decided that he wanted to take an extended holiday. It became a full year of travel, and what began as a distraction from any professional commitment ended up becoming the impetus for Panda Surfboards. Um, I basically just worked a couple jobs, saved up, and decided to go to Europe. Had a year of just having good times. Um, was it all in Europe? Uh, so I did... So when I left, I went straight to Indo, did a month in Indo. Uh, then I I had a job lined up in England. Um, so I got there. I was meant to be working at a surf school. Um, so I did that for a little bit um, and then got a job at one of the local boards shops and uh, worked there four days a week, surfed, partied, just cruised around, had really good time, met tons of people, and I still have – some really good relationships from people I met back then. They're still in my life. Um, So worked and just cruised around, saved up, bought a van over there with two other Aussies and we drove from England through France, Spain, Portugal, Morocco and back and just picked a spot on the map, surfed and we'd go, oh, we want to go party here, check out the sites here. Um, It was the best trip i've ever had what sure, age were I mean, you at the time i was 20 okay just turned 20 when i left um and it was a surf trip essentially yeah i was the purpose was to surf. yeah yeah um yeah i mean i think about that for kids all the time now like the value of taking a year off and uh it's hard to justify and especially if you're living somewhere like this where living expenses are so high it's just I, I went away with, I think I had $6,000 and I came home with money. No way. Like I worked while I yeah, was yeah. traveling, but I had nothing. Lived in a van, lived in hostels, just kind of bummed it and worked as I went and had a great time. I never did it. I, know I never did a full year off. I've taken plenty of trips throughout pretty much every year and that's how I justify it to myself. But- I would absolutely advocate that to my own kids or in my yeah, younger yeah. brothers or anything is like, dude, life is so serious. You got so much time to focus on your career and all that stuff when you're 20. Yeah. It's the and best most, time. Most jobs you need the experience anyway, and you're not going to know exactly what you want to do no. until you've actually lived a bit. Totally. So like I'd studied probably it was a waste of money it, shouldn't probably shouldn't have done that should have just gone got a job worked and then gone away um but that was probably one of the best times of my life for sure so far and you met 
Jordy Smith and his father there, which yeah. kind of spawned your career, right? So I was already I'd already been working with boards, but I hadn't actually shaped one yet. Um, and I the the shop I was working at was right next to the hostel I was working in, and it was right where they had a QS event. And uh, Jordy and his dad turned up, and um, a bunch of the other South Africans, and um, actually spent quite a bit of time with Geordie's dad that that week or so that they were there and he was he was probably trying to sell his boards into the shop or something um and he just got me really psyched on it and got me wanting to go and shape my board my first board so that kind of when I met him that really kind of got the wheels turning and then when I went back to Australia um, I went back to the factory I'd been working at and uh, one of the guys that was still there got me um, to shape the first board and kind of didn't stop from there. I just kept hanging around. <laughs> got it. So that's, I mean, in terms of giving advice to young people about go take a year off, it isn't a frivolous year. Not only do you have life experience, but you actually end up meeting somebody who yeah. does send you on your professional trajectory yeah yeah totally i would recommend it to anyone yeah. before you're gonna go college whatever and you don't really know what you're gonna do save up and go have a good time get some life experience behind you because once you get locked down it's never going to happen again no unless it's you're way really really lucky totally um retail has come up a number of times already in our conversation you pulling back from retail this year, but Jordy Smith's dad being there trying to get into retail. What role does retail play in your business? Um, it does play a pretty big role. I look at it really as um, kind of advertising in a way. Okay. It allows me to get boards out there and, you know, in front of people, especially in areas where, you know, I, it's not close to me. Um, so say like San Francisco or something. It allows the customer to go in, check them out, pick them up, hold them. If they don't have what's there, then they can custom order. Um, it does help grow the business. Um, so that's kind of the way I look at it. It, uh, You know, when you're really big, like the big guys, they need that because it keeps – it becomes a numbers game. I don't really need it. Um, I just look at it as kind of helping me get to certain areas and it is almost like it's like real estate it just gets it in front of people's faces they can see it yeah if it's not there they're only going to buy what they're going to see you know unless they're they happen to be following you and know who you are like you've got to get it in their faces totally. um so yeah I, I don't i'm not trying to be this huge brand and trying to be everywhere i only pick specific retailers um and one you know uh certain areas key guys there's a lot of stores that will waste your time totally you're just going to end up getting burned so you got to kind of be smart about who you pick um yeah i i just kind of go with those stores that really specialize in boards um and i've been lucky enough to kind of get some good relationships going with certain stores so i know it's a it's a good gig. Um, I have been burned in the past, um, especially over on the East Coast. It's 
kind of tricky when you're not there. You can't like get there, so they think, oh, we can just take this and run. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to be kind of careful. Word spreads through the industry, and you might be the first one to get burned, but hopefully people don't get burned yeah, behind yeah. you. You know, I know I'm not, but uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, retail. I you know I like to support the local guys as well and all the you know old original stores. Um, surf stores definitely have a place in the industry, and I hope they're there for you know years to come. But it isn't the band and be all and end all. It's a really tricky thing. Uh, we absolutely need the surf shops. And we'd prefer to have the frog house, you know, and like kind of um, small privately owned surf shops rather than some giant chain that carries all national yeah. brands. Yeah. However, I talked to the retailers on the podcast and they're like, surfboards are a uh, bad usage of our real estate. We make less margin on it. You know, it comes with, you have to have like expert level salespeople to be able to communicate with a consumer. Otherwise the consumer will just go direct to the shaper. So it's not a great fit for the retailer. It's not a great fit for the surfboard shaper, Yeah, but you need the surfboards there. You, you have do. to have surfboards in a surf shop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you also got to look at it like, yeah, maybe the margin's not as good, but it's a high-end product, a high-priced item. You are making more off that than what you're going to make off the other things. The net dollars that the retailer makes is it's, higher than. It's a core product. Without surfboards, we're not surfing. you got to have them. Um, and then, yeah, the other problem is staff. Like most surf stores, a lot of the staff don't know what's going on. Right. So, yeah. Some stores are really good, some not so good. It makes, so the uh, model that we've seen in the last couple of years of consignment where some of the large brands bring in boards on loan essentially and not um, retailer doesn't have to pay for them until the board sales sells. And then even then you have 30 or 60 or 90 days to pay the invoice. It makes perfect sense that that model is being introduced for the reasons that I just laid out, you know, and it's easy to point the fingers and say consignment model is hurting everybody else. And it is, but it also makes perfect sense that that would be a solution, you know? Yeah. Look, that model, it has its pros and cons, but like for me, I don't have the backing to be able to go and do that. So I don't, I work with the guys that are willing to pay for it. And usually, more often than not, the guys that are going to pay for it are the guys that are paying their bills. They have, um, you know, they're locked into a product. They're going to sell it. Right. And they tend to sell it really well. So we don't have problems. It works great. It is funny the way that works. If they paid for it, they're suddenly inclined to sell it. Yeah, they have to (laughs) sell it. So it works really well. I've got a couple of really good stores. They're all... Like I, I have basically it's a, a minimum. I make everyone pay a deposit, so at least then I'm covered. And then depending on the store and the rela- relationship that I have with them, then there can be negotiate, negotiating with terms. But I at least am covered with that, and it allows me to keep rolling my business. If I go drop 10, 20 boards in a store, I'm like really tied up. Then that's big drop on a store yeah 
So I'm not really willing to do that. And then you got to hope that they're going to pay you after that. And there are a lot of stores that will draw that out. And I've had that happen quite a lot of times. It will be like 120 days plus before you see it. Yeah, so it's impossible to yeah, run your not, business on that. Not worth it. You're never going to grow right properly by doing that. Yeah, that's bad for everybody. How do uh, team riders factor into your program? Because that's an expense as well. Yeah, um, well, I've got no CT riders. I'm not really focused on that, I guess you'd say. Um, if I ever did, it would have to be the right guy. You'd, I'd have to see it being worth it. Um, I think there's a lot of guys that probably just jump at the chance of pretty much anyone. There's a lot of guys on tour that couldn't sell product. Their life depended on it. <laughs> um, I I work with guys that, um, you know, I like what they're about, how they surf. Um, I kind of go with guys that probably have a little bit more character to them. Um, yeah, all my guys are free surfers and, Guys that are happy to try different stuff. They're not just about shortboards. Shortboards don't uh, really pay the bills in a way. Mm -hmm. I'm a shortboarder, always have been, but I've always ridden a lot of different stuff as well. Um, all the guys that ride for me, you know, are shortboarders, high-performance guys, but they're very alternate as well. Um and a bunch of them are kind of branching out a lot too. So just guys that are, you know, interesting to watch. Who are those guys? Uh, I've got Brendan Gibbons, Noah Collins, Colin Moran, Shane Borland. So like Shane, for instance, pro skater and surfer. He's like really good to watch in both, um, and that makes him more interesting. Um, Ford Archbold. Um, I've got Robbie Rickard in Australia, a um, couple of Groms around here, Taj Miller. He's kind of doing the contest thing. Um, what do you expect out of team riders? Um, I probably expected more back in the day, but now it's just kind of, I just, depending on who it is, you know, I just give them a couple boards here and there and I just want them to, you know, work with me, give me some clips here and there and kind of uh, just get the boards out there. That's what they're for. You want them seen Mark out in the water. Okay, so it's a marketing tool. Yeah, 100% okay. marketing not, tool. Not relying on them for guidance necessarily. No, no, it's 100% marketing tool. Okay. Um, you know, it's what, it's what really cements your name, who's writing them. Um, you know, if, if you don't have any team riders, it can't, you're only going to sort of sit at a certain level unless you're a pro surfer yourself. Yeah. Um, having a good surfer just Validate. kind of validates that the boards go really good. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue to stab in the dark. Uh, did you see that Taj is the next test pilot? I did. <laughs> <laughs> did you have inside info on that? Were you involved in the new one? I am involved. I didn't know it was him. Um, would have been good to know because I thought it was someone. Well, actually, originally I thought it might have been him, but the size, the height, weight, and all that they gave us, and the volume was completely wrong. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so tell us what you he receive 
from STAB? Um, what information? We, we get height, weight, and a leaderage. And so actually, they tell us the length of the board. That that, that person normally rides. Yeah. How could they have been wrong? I don't know. I think maybe, I don't know. They changed maybe surfers. Maybe they changed surfers. Oh. Um, I was thinking it was like Kelly or maybe even Felipe, but I saw uh, Marcio from Sharp Eye dropping his off at the same time and he said he, he thought it was Kelly. Um, so it was a lighter. So for him to say that, it definitely wasn't Felipe. Um, yeah, it was a lightweight little guy. Yeah. Um, it's, I actually went a little over volume because I was like, there's no way. There's no one this size that is any good. Like the, of that right. level that you would you would have to do this because they're going to be able to articulate it all and break it down. And I was like, fuck, I don't know who, who this is. Pat O'Connell. <laughs> Tomas Hermes. Yeah. <laughs> like, or it could have been a female surfer. Could have been. Um, anyway, I was kind of thinking Kelly and I heard whispers that it was and then it turned out it wasn't. So. Well, it's funny that you're saying that because in the trailer, Taj says, God, these boards are all so small. Yeah, I know. And that the other thing was they're meant to be small wave performance boards and they're getting ridden in WA, which is, and it looks like the waves are pumping from what they've shown. Um, so that's the other thing. He's riding small wave gravel boards in pumping waves. So, Well, we can criticize, uh, we do on the podcast, criticize um, not only stab, but certainly stab in the dark for ways that they could do things better. I would not do it any better myself. I would do it way worse. They're doing a great job at what they're doing. Um, there's a lot of moving parts for them. So it makes sense that some things would not end up exactly as they planned. During COVID, yeah. like they've had to ship boards across the world. Totally. Some of them have been shaped over there, shipped over here and shipped, sent back again. Oh my gosh. So tell me from your experience, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the, the concept? Because I think it's kind of the best board review concept we have going in surfing but there still are weaknesses. What, yeah. What's your experience? Um, well, I mean, every board's made in a different factory. It's, if you don't know who it is, like some of the shapers, they've shaped for all these guys. I haven't most of the, like I've had a few guys here and there, but I, you know, for me, it's more of a guessing game. Um, if you don't know where it's going to be ridden, you, you need to know exactly where it's going to be ridden and a lot of details to really nail it, I think. Um, like with this one, if it, you, I would shape two completely different boards for California to West Oz, whether it's small wave or not. Right. West Oz just has way more power. Yep. Um, you know, I heard whispers that it was going to be like lowers area testing. Look at the waves he's riding it in. Right. It's pumping. Um, I think uh, with the shortboards, it's, um, there's definitely a few flaws, but this one I think is a lot more fair because it's all been manufactured in the one factory. Okay. So it's all the same tech. So that other epoxy one they did, they're all different. I think this one, they're all exactly the same. So it's a lot, I think a lot more fair. It's just 
having the the correct sizing and where it's going to get ridden. Yeah, because there's so many variables. Um, yeah. Do you think uh, that the concept still has value? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I I love the idea. Okay. I think it's great, um, and it it really gives a a big platform to showcase the world's best. Um, I don't know how I'm in there. I'm just lucky. <laughs> well, you've done a lot of them, right? You I did, did the, the first one. I did that first one, yeah. Julian, Noah Dean. Oh, that, oh, that was, was electric, electric acid. acid. Yeah. Okay, so that was different. So you've done two then officially. Yeah. Um, I think the concept has tremendous value as well, and I think it has tremendous shortcomings, but the shortcomings don't negate the value like there's this broader value but if you're watching it to learn which surfboard you should buy next week off the rack you're missing the point completely yeah yeah you know like the point isn't to find out who the best shortboard shaper is it's to hear the surfer communicate and articulate the differences between the boards and um you should be able to glean some information off that as the viewer and it's ripe rife with uh, problems, you know, Jordy breaks a board on his first session. And so that board gets thrown out or he surfs a, a board in crappy conditions and another one in great conditions. All of that stuff is just going to happen. It's going to be baked into the original error of the concept, but it still has value on yeah, a broader level. Yeah. And the, you know, the public has to understand these are shaped for those guys specifically. Right. It's not a stock board. Right. So you can't really look into it as what you're going to get for your next board. This is, it's a contest. That's how all the shapers are looking at it. It's a shaping contest, really. I'm curious if from your perspective, you can identify why the winning board wins. Uh, no, I don't know, really. I, I can't <laughs> either. When I, I, I mean, if I was them, I'd just be going off what felt best. And each guy's totally different. Well, that's and what I mean is as a viewer watching it, I'm liking certain boards certain ways and those aren't the ones that win. Yeah. When the surfer picks this one, I go. I don't know if they're judge like if they're looking back at footage to see what they like. Also, there's probably other people in the background saying, oh, I think this one looked really good. Um, I don't know how much they're actually going off what they felt. Um, yeah, it's hard to. Really yeah. say. I just always feel like shapers are cued into little things that maybe I'm not picking yeah, up. Yeah, I like that like I'm the same as you. There's some I've seen where I'm like, oh, that thing looks so good. And then they go for something that mm -hmm. doesn't look quite as good, might be a little boggy, but it throws more spray and they might be looking at the footage more than how it feels. Yeah. Uh our conversation a while back actually started with you telling me about your own learning process with the electric acid surfboard test. Um, taking a few, the model, the board model is called a shiitake. Yep. Taking a couple of inches off of it, I guess normally the low end of it is six foot six. The one you made for Noah was six foot four. And by doing that, the fins that you normally ride in it ended up being too big. Yeah. And so Noah was having issues with, you know, it wasn't as, yeah, that and also how he was trying to surf it. Right. So the bigger fin, it's a lot smoother and flowier. He was trying to like be quite aggressive with it. Right. It's not really what it's for. You want to slow yourself down, smooth things out. 
you know, it's not made to do airs. It's like big open face calves, real smooth, early entry. Um, but when you cut it down, it does become a little bit more sensitive and um, reactive. So you kind of start surfing a little bit more like a shortboard. Mm. And that's where the smaller fin does come into play. You get a little bit more spring, allows you to throw it around a little bit more. Um, Let's tease it apart for listeners. I want them to understand how everything happens in concert with design. So it's not enough just to say, I like this type of rocker. Well, if you change the outline, then it's a different type of rocker that you would want, you know, or if you change a contour on the bottom, then the rock, you should change the rocker too. Yeah. So I, and also the idea of people, this ties in with people talking about the volume that they like. It's like, I understand why you want to understand that, but it matters whether you're writing a fish or a quad or a thruster or whatever. So let's talk about your own learning experience with that board specifically. Tell us about the board design. Yep. And then also you said that you went through a learning curve of setting up your own fin. It's a twinser and you had to learn how to set up your own fins based off or, or reset the fins based off that experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that one specifically. So I knew it was going to Hawaii um, and I knew Noah never rides that. He never will ride anything other than his standard 6-1 shortboard. Um you worked with his, with LSD. Yeah, so I work with LSD and I do their custom orders for the US. So I'm very familiar with the boards that he rides. Um, anyway, so I I was talking to a few friends who surf with him all the time. They're like, man, he never rides anything other than his shortboard. And I listened to them and they're like, oh, I'd cut it down. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I should do that. And anyway, I cut it down. So normally I would make him like a 6-7 in that sort of thing. Six seven six eight. I cut it down to six four, so it would kind of be a little more familiar and a little bit more maneuverable. Because um, who knows? I didn't know how he's going to try and surf it. In hindsight, I would make the bigger ones so that he'd be forced to slow himself down and surf it how it's meant to be surfed. Um, I was kind of hoping it would be either like some little bit of pipe where he could get in early and just kind of backdoor a section and just get some good barrels on it. Um, anyway, I cut it down and in doing so, so I hadn't really played with that yet in that shape. His shape's meant to be kind of around the 6.6 six plus, kind of like a an, a long fish shape. Okay. Um, and cutting it down makes it more reactive, more kind of shortboard feel you lose a bit of that glide that they have and that's kind of like the thing that makes them really good that's the sweet spot yeah um so there's like a real sweet spot between six six and seven oh it's like feels amazing as soon as you come down I've, I've played with it a lot since and you lose that glide they actually feel better in bigger waves but then the fins are different you use the same fin a the fin I had been using is bigger. It feels a bit stiff, but it also creates too much lift. And you actually need to come down in size to reduce that lift. Um, I also had um, like a bigger Twinser canard fin on there. I've since cut that right down. Um, it, it's still like kind of in the same position. I think I've maybe 
shifted the, them back a touch, um, but the actual size of the fins changed. A flexier fin feels really good, especially in smaller stuff. Um, gives you a bit more spring. Um, but it also depends on the surfer and the style of surfing you want to do with this board. So, yeah, I, I've been getting a lot of guys coming off short boards wanting to get these things and they don't want to go the 6.6, six. they want to go like 6.2, six, 6.3. Six, well, if you're going to go that size and the surfing they're going to do on it, it's going to be a little bit more aggressive and I've found the waves that works in is kind of like good waves here, it's going to be head high plus um, and you want that smaller fin. Um, but if you're going somewhere like Sano, like I'll take my 6.6 six down there and I ride a big fin and it's just big, drawn-out, smooth turns and the thing feels great. feels mm. so much – it's so much fun. Um, it almost feels like if they wanted a 6.2, why wouldn't they just get like a fish or some other yeah, it's Yeah, it's been designed specifically to be in that longer length. Yeah, exactly. Um, but since then I've played around with the smaller sizes and I've even got – ridden a 5.6, I've got a 5.11 – um, and the 511 is actually a shortboard outline. So, but keeping a similar sort of rocker, the outline's changed. Um, but try, that board has a really good flow to it. So I'm trying to like crush that down into more of a shortboard shape. Um, and it has some really good things about it. But then it, when you come down that much, it starts to kind of get a little loose in some ways. But then some things about it are really amazing. So I've been tinkering around a little bit more there. Um, but, yeah, when you come down, it just becomes a totally different board, and I feel like it's better in better waves. Can you explain for listeners who don't know what the Twinser setup even is, what it looks yep. like, what the positioning is like also, and what is the value of it? Why do you use that? So the Twinser... Had, it's basically a twin fin with two little canard fins just kind of they, – they're just in front and to the side of the main twin. And what it does, it breaks so – outside of the main – Yeah, so they – Closer to the rail. They're, um, they're angled out a lot more, kind of almost somewhere like between a – almost like a bonzer and a twin – so you've got these really angled out fins and it catches the water as it crosses the board. Um, it basically catches the water and it almost it breaks the water before it hits the main fin, reduces the drag, so they feel really fast. And uh, the way it turns is a little different. Um, they can, depending on the shape, it can loosen a board up a lot. So that's why in the bigger shape it feels really good because it kind of frees it up and they... The way that it turns, it almost um, like will initiate the turn a little earlier. Like it kind of frees up. Say you're doing a top turn, makes it a little more effortless and easy to wrap it around. Whereas if you're on a thruster, you've got to have your body positioned correctly to make that all in one movement. The twins, it kind of makes it a little tighter and looser through the turn in a way. Um, but they're really fast and you'll notice the difference in the speed and the reduced drag. And that, uh, if that's true, why not just add that little trick, a little leading fin for every fin setup? 
it wigs people out a little bit too much, I think. I have done it. And like I said, I've been riding a shortboard with them lately. Um, it's been done in the past. Potts used to ride them when he was on tour. They've been around for a long time. It's just they are actually becoming kind of somewhat popular at the moment. Um, they're good and bad. They don't have the pivot of a thruster and the or the drive of a thruster. Um, but they've got more speed than a regular twin and they don't quite have the – I think a quad's got a little bit more control in some situations. It's really like this kind of crossbreed thing. Um, they get – they create a lot of lift and that's where the length of – or the fin depth comes into play. So I've actually been coming down in fin depth, going a little – uh, wider in the base and then angling them out more and more. Um, yeah, it's a kind of a real science. Um, well, it's also an endless hole that you could chase. Yeah, yeah. I've got – I've just put in to get a whole bunch of prototypes made at the moment with um, Naked Viking. Oh, are like you really? Six different prototypes Good getting done. Good for you. I didn't know about that. Yeah, um, just – like wanted to try a bunch of stuff, but like get them, get them to do what they do and just make these things so they're really good off the bat instead of me like trying to foil my own and, you know, they're, they're going to go, but they might do funky weird things. If I can get them like dialed in off the bat, I'm going to be a step ahead. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm tinkering around quite a bit with different fin setups at the moment. I'm trying to, get um, somewhat more control with it, kind of going toward somewhere between a quad and a twin so that it's got all that speed but just a little bit more control so that you can surf it in a short board and still keep some of that drive because you will lose a bit of that. If you ever try to ride a short board style board as a, with a twin, you're going to slide out everywhere because the way that you – Say you're on your backside and you try to hit the lip. If you're on your backside, you're going to push really hard with your back foot when you hit it and it wants to pop out. So that's where a thruster works really good because it stays, it keeps the tail engaged. Um, so with these, it's kind of the whole back end of the board's got to be redesigned. The rocker's different, um, a lot lower and straighter rocker. Um, yeah, I've been tweaking and changing things things up all over the place. Um, we, I was, I saw that I watched the video on your website, like the introduction video and you talked about designing boards on the software and then it shows you in the shaping bay, actually building a board from scratch. Yep. Um, is that, and Devin and I were obviously that episode that you were just talking about earlier he and I were talking about the differences between shaping machine and hand shaping. And we didn't discuss that one detail. Yeah. Which is designing on the computer, but then executing by hand. Yeah. Tell um, me what your process is. So what I tend to do, especially like with that shiitake model, I hand shape those until I have them at a certain point where I'm happy with them. Then I take that. So I've never used a scanner. I, measure the thing up and I redesign it on the computer to try to get it as close as I can 
to what I have hand shaped. Um, and then like it, sometimes you'll get it straight away. Other times you might get it back and there's like weird points on it that are wigged out and you got to just dial it in, fine tune it, get the rails the right um, thickness and get it all exactly how you would with your original one. Um, and I think uh, like the, the computer serves a purpose. It's a tool when you're trying to create consistency, you're dealing with customers. A lot of the customers right now, you'd be surprised that they all just, they don't know their dimensions. They just know that leaderage. That plays a huge part, but it's all about consistency and getting boards out on time. So if I was just hand shaping all the time, my lead time would be like eight months or something. I would not be getting through the amount of work. Like if you look at a lot of the guys that are hand shaping, you'll be waiting months. Um, Cause I'm in the short board side of things. Um, people don't tend to wait eight months for a short board. It's like stretching it at two. Um, and also with, more high-performance boards, you are dialing it in to like point of a millimetre. Like you're getting it pretty specific. Um, and it's just one of those things, like if you've got 10 boards a day, like it helps with that consistency and getting it, repeating it over and over and, um, you know, trying to keep everyone happy and on a timely manner. Yep. And I'm running a business. So when it comes down to hand shaping, you, I've done the math. It's not really worth it. The time I've got to spend in there to do it and then the little extra that I'm going to make out of it, it's kind of not there. The hand shaping part I do to come up with a design, dial it in, and then that's also my hobby. So... When I get time to do it, that's what I like to do. But when I don't, <laughs> I'm, you know, I've got the guy downstairs bringing me those boards to keep the production rolling. It's fascinating listening to you how much, how you allocate your time between research and development. Like you're tinkering on designs constantly yeah, well, versus I'm, delivering. <clears throat> I'm not getting that much time like right at the moment. Some of those little things like the fins and stuff, if I'm surfing, I'm thinking about that yeah. stuff. If I'm not surfing, I don't get to really think about it. For the last month, I've barely surfed. I'm just in the office all day. I'm not getting to get those creative juices flowing. You know, I would love to, you know, one of my goals for next year is to spend maybe one day a you know, one day a month or every two weeks focusing on new stuff, like really trying to just, you know, be able to put those ideas to practice. Mm -hmm. Whereas like right now, all I do, it's just a production line. I'm in there and I'm just trying to keep everyone happy and keep things rolling. If I don't get in there, it just keeps stacking up. And customers, you, know, you got to keep them happy and I'm getting hounded constantly. You know, like I think I answered 20 emails a day. Is my board ready yet? It's like, it's crazy. <laughs> and then you got Instagram and everything. So it's instant contact. So 
we've seen, I'll give you two examples of people who have done it successfully. And my ultimate question is gonna be, what does the version look like for you? But Skip Fry surfs every day, makes a good living, makes exactly as many boards as he wants to in a given year. And everybody whose order didn't make it just has to wait. Gets to live the lifestyle he wants, gets to charge the price he wants. Hayden Shapes, I don't feel like he's buried in either paperwork or foam dust. I feel like he's figured out an equation where he can make a comfortable living, he can spend time with his family, he can surf, and people still get his boards. So those are opposite ends, but where where are you? Where does it where's the perfect fit for you that you would Well, I would like to take a bit of both of those. Exactly. I ideally like I'm trying to cement a name. I feel like Hayden um, was so business driven that he went that other route. I've been more focused on building good shapes that really work and s- trying to cement my name. I would like to be like someone like Skip down the road, but also would like to own my own house and that sort of thing. So I would, I would, I see myself still doing this when I'm 70 years old, you know. I'd like to be able to get to that point where I could charge a lot of money for that. But Skip's been, you know, he's been around for so long. He's one of the originals. He's earned that. Um, Is there a way to do it? I don't know. I mean, ultimately that's what this comes down to because you're at a nexus where there's more business than you can handle. It all comes down to how you manage it and then how you grow it from there. And... It, I mean, a lot of people do this forever and they don't make money. I you know. know I mean? I've, like, I've gone and they don't surf I, anymore either. I go th- over this constantly <laughs> where I really want to go and where I want to end up. The hand shaping, like, and charging a premium would be more enjoyable, but I can't see myself, like, getting through the work and, like, really staying on top of things. In a way, it's very hard to and to consistently make a living. I kind of need the machine there to be able to keep it at a certain level. Um, yeah, it's a hard one. I I don't really want to go Hayden's route necessarily. I'd, I I admire him for what he's done. Like he's taken it to the top, and I'm from the same area. We've from the same like friend circle, you know, like I've known him for a long time and seen him go through that whole uh, process. Um, But I would like to be, you know, respected by my peers and respected as a top end shaper. That's what I've always wanted to do. Um, I don't know if he's necessarily going to get that because he's had to burn bridges along the way. Yeah. He's I'm done sure what he's, he's had to do yeah. because he's a businessman. Um, I'm not sure. I, I kind of, that's where it's like there is kind of a sweet spot with, I guess, kind of where I am now. I'm kind of like above those little guys, but then just below the big guys. Um, How often do you ride others, other shapers surfboards? I haven't ridden anyone else's board in a long time, actually. Can't remember the last. 
thing I rode that was someone else's was probably like a longboard when I was down at Sano and I didn't have one. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually haven't ridden anyone else's board for a long time. If you could get any board from anybody in the world, what would you get? Um, so I kind of have this thing for like, I wouldn't mind getting one of Maurice Cole's reverse fees, like the Tom Curran one. Um, or a, maybe a Bob McTavish. Bob's still shaping. It'd be great to go sit in the bay with him and watch him shape me aboard. That would be really cool. And the stories you're going to hear during that's going to be good as well. I think that's a that'd just be a good experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like a skip or any of the old guys. But I think um, the one that would interest me the most design-wise would be like a reverse V. I just that just to me appeals to me. Um, yeah, it's amazing how many of those kind of icon pioneer guys are still shaping boards. Yeah, and well, the the thing is, they're all still surfing. I know they're pretty fit. Um, that's that's the thing with shaping. It's like you're doing it for a lifestyle. You might not make that much money, as long as you realize that and live the lifestyle, you're going to be happy. It's when you, and I get caught up in this all the time where you're like, fuck, I'm not making enough money and you don't surf and you're just grinding it out. That's when it sucks. Mm-hmm. If you can make sure you're getting in the water all the time, you're going to love it. Because it, when, I'm do, when I'm surfing all the time, I'm working better. I'm coming up with more ideas. It gets you motivated to get in there and just want to make new stuff. Yep. If you're not, you get stale real quick. Yeah. I actually have a Maurice Cole reverse V groveler. So it's a different design than the Tom Kern one, obviously, but it's certainly more applicable around here. Yeah. You're more than welcome to borrow that if you want. Yeah. I'd love take to take it for a spin. What surf media do you follow? Surf Splendor. Sweet. Um, <laughs> I follow a lot of the different podcasts. Um, Ain't That Swell's one of my favourite ones. I think those guys are doing a good job in bringing surf culture back. Um, Great call. um, I listen to The Grit. and uh, What else have I got on there? I I mean, I I obviously follow Stab and Beach Grit. Um, It's kind of it. I don't really look at too much else. It's kind of whatever pops up in my feed. You're not getting magazines anymore i haven't um do you get them at the shop i almost picked one up the other day but i wasn't sure if it was the last one of um was the last surfer mag it's the aerial photo yeah so i i wasn't i almost got it i was like oh i don't know if it's the last one i probably should have just got it i think it is um no i haven't bought any magazines lately I probably should subscribe to Surfers Journal because if most of the time that's what I'll pick up. Um, I used to subscribe to a bunch of the mags in Australia. I had a huge collection of them. Um, but, yeah, I kind of just whatever pops up in my feed at the moment. Yeah. Uh, I do have a subscription to the Surfers Journal and I always – it's worth it. I don't like crave it or anything. I'm not even tracking when it should land in my mailbox, but when it does, 
I enjoy it. I read it. I'm happy that I read it. It's a good use of my time. I do miss picking up a magazine. And actually when I travel, that's like I would always get one at the airport. Yeah. The other, I went to Oregon the other week and I was looking for stuff and there was nothing. Um, yeah, so I kind of, I do miss that. Yeah. That regular flick through the magazine to see what's going on. Totally. Um, final question is, what are you writing? No, you're not surfing. Um, yeah, I haven't been <laughs> surfing that much. Um, last board I rode was the 6'6 shiitake. Oh, nice. Yeah. It was like, I would say it was a half surf. I, <laughs> I did it just to go get wet and I paddled out. It was like knee high and crowded and I caught like three waves and went in. <laughs> did you, uh, were you disappointed that you actually paddled out? Or was uh, it, worth it? it felt good to get wet. But um, the last good surf I had, actually, I went to the wave. I went to Waco a couple of weeks ago. That was good. Was and it? And I rode a five six kind of variation of the shiitake, little twinser thing, and a sweet leaf shortboard. Um, what setting did you ride the pool on? We so we had a group of us, and we had couple of private sessions so we rode we had the air section the barrel the like double barrel the lowers wave the lowers wave was kind of the best i think and because we had 12 of us when you do those other settings you only get one wave sets you're sitting around too long the lowers wave everyone's getting tons of waves three that waves was, every 90 seconds yeah, or whatever it was super fun and then like we some of those other ways, like the air section, I just didn't get enough goes at it. Like I got three or four goes and it's like. Did you pull one? No, I came, I came close and my board, I landed on my board in the white water and got fucked off. Okay. But it definitely feels like after two or three goes, you're like, okay, I can, this feels good. But then you just don't get enough goes to like really get it down. Yeah. I'm not really good at airs anyway, so <laughs> Nor- I'd, I'd need a lot of good, a lot of goes at it. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm not either. I'm I'm not even wired to like look at the wave that way, to be honest. But um, that in that pool specifically, when they tell you what you need to do and everything, you really could figure it out if yeah, you had enough. It, you get this like if you time it, it's like the perfect section. It just you need you need like ten goes to really get totally. Yeah, I Get it down. I never sorted it out either. But the one thing that always trips me out is how late you hit the section. My instinct is to go into it like when it's breaking. It needs to be like pitching. And when you watch the pros do it, they hit it super duper late. Yeah. I would be aiming for that and then back off if I saw it breaking that much. But that's exactly when you need to project in. Yeah, it, and the first know? the first go I had at it was at nighttime and you it was hard to like gauge. Yeah. And then you kind of need, like, need to sit back and watch a couple waves go through so you can see what it's doing, especially with like the barrel, like that double barrel. The double barrel, you can't even make the second one. It's like if you pull into the first one, you can't get to the second okay. one. It's like you either got to just race for the second or pull into the first one. Yeah. And if you don't stand back and actually see what it does, you don't, you don't know that it does that. Yeah. Yeah, it's still fun. Yeah, it's so it, it was it was great fun. 
and I haven't been so excited for something in a long yeah. time. I felt like I was a kid going to the skate park for the first time. Um, but then it is also a mission to go all the way of to Texas. Yeah. So I can't well, wait gonna, for the, the desert pools to open. Totally. The reason why I asked you if you um, were glad that you surfed the half session was up into a certain point in my life, I was always glad that I went in the water. I never left a session regretting it. Now, partially because of adulthood and that I have like workload that's waiting for me at home, I've uh, not been able to justify a couple of my sessions. And it's usually like when you just said, where it's knee high, it's closed out, it's crowded. And I tell myself what you told yourself, which is I just need to get wet. But inevitably, I try to catch waves while I'm out there and I get frustrated <laughs> and I get three straight handers and I go, I am better than this. Like this has reduced me down to an absolute beginner yeah. where I'm barely getting to my feet and I'm just going straight and it's embarrassing. Yeah, well, and like around here lately, it's been more crowded than ever. Totally. And it's literally knee waist high closeouts. Yeah. And I look at it every morning, I'm like, I shouldn't even look at the no. camera. I should just go and not check it. But the minute I look at it, I'm like, oh, I can't do it. I've got so much work to do. I'm just going to work. And that's where you get stuck in that rut. Yeah. I, I did it today. Did you? <laughs> yeah. I do it all the time. I need to just make an effort of just going down there and going out no matter what just to kind of get in there because otherwise I'm just like, oh, I'm not going out. Midlife problems, dude. I know. <laughs> and I'm getting too used to just working all the time. I know, me too. It's embarrassing. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Gladly. pandasurfboards.com is blake's website at pandasurfboards is his instagram account thank you for your candor blake if you enjoyed this conversation i have another episode coming in the same vein with a younger board builder named michael aronall who is just 10 years into his shaping career and he's faced with setting a lot of this groundwork that so many shapers i think overlook early on and then have to go back and rebuild while they're running a full-time business. So that's an um, uh, interesting conversation to look forward to. It's interesting for me personally to have kind of seven years of hindsight now and be able to see some of these new guys coming up because for so long I was interviewing people that had decades of experience and we were talking about the past. It's interesting to start talking about the future. So anyways, thank you for accommodating my hiatus this past month as I've built out the website. I'm really glad to finally reveal this subscription model and um, that whole wing of the website. It's overdue, I reckon, and I'm just so amped to finally do the work and develop some of these concepts that have been marinating amongst us, um, me and my cohorts here, colleagues. For the last couple of years, there's so much that we want to exploit and do that we just really have not had the time or been able to justify. So so much more to come in 2021 it's going to be a great year please support us at surfsplendorpodcast.com just click support the show 
from that menu bar up at the top, and away we will go. We'll also be giving away that album Soft Top on December 1st to one lucky supporter. And of course, our t-shirts and merch is coming for Surf Splendor, for Spit, and for The Grit. Those should be ready just before Christmas, so I'll make sure to alert you when that's all ready. And um, subscribers will get five bucks off per shirt, so that'll pay for a monthly subscription alone. All right, uh, this is David Scales. We just published an episode of Spit yesterday. We've got another episode of The Grit coming this week. Matt Warshaw is scheduled to join us there. So look forward to that, and then I'll be back here next week with an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. So thank you so much. This is David Scales reminding you to, of course, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.